Hello and welcome to The Scrum, a podcast where we talk about politics and political media from Beacon Hill all the way to the Beltway. I'm Adam Riley. As some of you may have heard, Boston's bid for Olympic glory has officially died RIP. So our colleague Mike Dean decided to get a group of people together at the Banshee Pub in Dorchester to sit down with a truckload of nachos and ask, where did it all go wrong? Mike was kind enough to ask me to moderate the conversation, and we decided to put it on tape. Lauren Dzenski of the Dorchester Reporter, and now, by the way, of Politico, Shirley Leung from the Boston Globe, and Kelly Gossett from the group No Boston Olympics broke it all down. Take a listen. So I want to ask a couple questions of you know the entire panel, and then a couple questions focused on individuals, and I'll front load Kelly since she's about to take off. But um, before I do that, I just have to say, um, like a lot of the journalists in the room, I am sort of already bummed out that this story is done because it was manna from heaven for us. And it was also from a non-journalistic point of view, from a not just a journalistic point of view, I thought it was really gratifying to have this one issue that acted as a catalyst for this big sustained conversation about what Boston and the Boston area is and could become and should become. I almost feel thinking back on it, you know, three days after it all ended, like it's a once in a lifetime opportunity to have that sort of sustained intense convo. I don't know if it's replicable. It'd be great if it was, but it may not be. So that's, I think, something I am going to hugely miss. But that out of the way, my question for Shirley and Lauren and Kelly at the outset is when did Boston 2024 really die? Did it die after Marty Walsh gave that defiant press conference on Monday or was it already as good as dead? I can start. Um, for us, it's, it ended after the USOC dropped it. I think that's important for us to know is that it you play through the whistle, so it wouldn't have been smart for us to uh, think it was over at 9 a.m. or after the mayor's presser. Um, we were putting the printer together at 1 o'clock that afternoon that we'd ordered the week before. So it is, we were still working until it's over, and you never know until it is. So I think that mentality was important for us. Is that what you really believed in your heart of hearts, or did you think when you heard Walsh's press, or maybe even before, that this thing is toast. I think the weekend there was some rumblings that it was absolutely in critical condition for sure and last week and the debate was a big deal but the Brattle report was something that was still being held out for August so I think there was a degree of thinking August was going to be an um, important month for it so I didn't think it was Monday but it was yeah sure it was imminent. Lauren I see you wanted to hop in. I gotta ask you, uh, you came into WGBH to do some radio on Monday morning. Can I relay, I, I asked you if you thought the bid was gonna be pulled on Monday. Can I relate what you said to me or can you Please. relate to the group? Please, right, do you remember what you told me? Barely. Okay, Lauren's answer when I asked her if the bid was gonna be pulled on Monday was 100%, no doubt about it. This is, uh, I guess, 25 minutes or so before Marty Walsh announced that press conference. So why did, why did you think there was 100% certitude that the bid was done before Walsh gave that presser. Looking at the news reports that came out over the weekend and considering the fact that it was what inside the games, you know, it was it was media outlets including the Associated Press who are so well sourced with the USOC that they don't get it wrong. You know, these people have been covering the Olympics for so long that they know what's going on inside the USOC's head far better than any of us in Boston. And so I just you know, I obviously it wasn't 100%, but it was uh, Shirley, what's your take? Uh, I would say the beginning of the end of the bid was in March, 
Remember the, the few weeks when, um, uh, was it was it the first when, um, I, I forgot, now it's all melting, but, but you remember the week I was where- hoping, I had no idea what you were talking about when you said the week in when, March. So was, in March, that few weeks when uh, John Fish went a little nuts, out of control, uh, you know, was talking about a referendum, was kind of caught on Channel 5, you know, linked Olympics to patriot, you know, being, That's you right, know, yeah. anti you know, the decline of patriotism, patriotism in the US right now. Exactly. And the $7,500 a day uh, uh, compensation for uh, Deval Patrick. I remember precisely, I was thinking, this is the beginning. If, if this is where the, where the bid starts to unravel, you know, right here. And, and, and if from that moment, the polls went south and they never came back. But think about, we just went through that bad winter. Because some people will also blame the bad winter, you know, and the failure of the team. And so we just came back from, the snow was finally stopped, I think, a little bit, or let up a little bit, and right, slightly. And so people were in a bad mood. Uh, and then, um, and then you know, you had that kind of one, two, three. I remember it was like one, two, three. Oh, that was also the same week that the Wall Street Journal wrote that story about um, how the bid, or how USOC or the IOC was talking to LA. That that week there was like three things in a row that hit, and and, and I think it might have been the same time that John was talking about a referendum. And I was thinking, why are they? Everybody was talking about referendum. We would support a referendum. I'm thinking like. How is this possible to be supporting a referendum? Um, you know, you do an about face. I mean, this is this is the beginning of, of losing, um, you know, losing trust. The public was not going to trust you anymore. You know, because you keep on changing what you're saying. Kelly, this is the biggest question I wanted to ask you specifically tonight. Obviously, there were two groups working against the Olympic bid. Your group, No Boston Olympics and No Boston 2024, and we have some people, I see Jonathan Cohen's back, and I'm not sure who else is, is here from, hi Cassie. And, and hopefully we can get you guys maybe up here and talking when, when Kelly um, has to take off. But I wonder if you think that the bid would be dead right now if there had just been either No Boston Olympics or No Boston 2024, and not both groups. I think both were very important, honestly. I think they add a lot to it. I think this was, we're up against extremely powerful interest in the city. It's a small town. Um, having uh, both voices and both tactics, I think, was very important and added a lot to the cacophony of dissent, for sure, um, and different strategies. And I think we're obviously both very pleased with the outcome. Can you tell me anything, and now that this is all done, I'm hoping you can be more yeah, candid than you would have been a couple weeks ago. How did you guys work together, yeah. if at all, and how much tension, if there was any, was there between the two groups? Not tension, I would say, and I'd let Jonathan and Cassie and them who are here say it for us. There was no tension, it was it was pretty, I think we knew kind of what our, our lanes were and where to stay in. Um, communication was great, and that's been a big thing about it. Like, just having a discussion is really important, and we knew that they had their meeting before we ever did. So, yes, we've been around for a year prior to that, um, but, and there are things that they can focus on that they're so much more knowledgeable than we are um, in terms of displacement, for example, and things like that, that just was not, we were more focused on the financial risk piece and a few other um, issues. And so it was not, there was no tension. It was, it was a good knowledgeable, uh, you know, agreement of where we would kind of land. To what extent did you guys stay in regular touch throughout the debate? 
frequent? Yeah. I mean, would you be on the phone or would someone from your group be on the phone with someone from the Obama 2044 daily or anything? No. Who talks on the phone anymore? Text. Yeah, I, I, I mean, know it's, it's virtual. Yeah. Uh, was it daily? Uh, not daily. No. Was it weekly? Uh, sometimes. Definitely. Uh, but yeah, Twitter, uh, emails quite frequently, and at times uh, more often than not. Depend on. But this has been a wild ride. It depends on the story in the month, and I'll let Jonathan and Cassie talk about that. And Robin, if, if Robin's not here, but yeah. All right, and then my final uh, follow-up for you before I move on to these guys. My sense. I remember interviewing you a while back. And I had the sense that your mission had shifted a little bit, that you guys, wow. despite being named No Boston Olympics, were all of a sudden, you know, okay with some iterations of Boston yeah. Olympics, just not the particular bid yeah. that was out there. And then, again, my sense from the outside was that maybe there was a shift back to being what your name said you were. So again, without divulging yeah. any trade secrets, secrets, did you evolve in terms of your ultimate goal over the no, course of the, the day? No, the goal was always this. No, absolutely. I think the conversation shifted and getting into some of the rooms. It wasn't just going to sit there and be ideologically opposed to it. It was talking about the details and talking about in the weeds of it. So the taxpayer guarantee was the first piece. that, And we never got past that, really. So we couldn't get to our other two bullet points that we would talk at at nauseam. Um, Rich Davey was the one who said that you're maybe Boston Olympics. We never were maybe Boston I Olympics. Swear, I remember Chris saying something like, and if I were better prepared, I would have this uh, here verbatim. But he said something like, we are not dead set against an Olympic yeah, Games. We, we would that. be happy well, to make, he was here, he happy to make the bid better. That okay. was the city yeah. council here. Yeah, that was the city council. I remember that. And there was like the ghost sound in the background. Right, I totally remember yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was asked that question at the debate. If there was no, yeah. if we didn't sign the, if, if the city didn't have to sign the financial guarantee, would you support the Olympics? And he didn't answer their question, as no. I recall. Yeah. So um, can you answer for him here? No, I mean, well, now absence. it's moved. But I think that's the biggest piece that was, that is the sticking piece. That is like the crux of it. So to who we have conversations, we had conversations in 2024 where they wouldn't even, see that that was going to happen. So until we could, I think we wouldn't have those conversations if we weren't being reasonable and saying we want to have an important part of this conversation and debate. But until we get there, like we wouldn't get farther through the negotiation. That actually is something that I found a little tricky covering this. Sometimes it was hard to know who to identify as an opponent and who to identify as a skeptic. And I remember interviewing, uh, interviewing state rep Jeff Deal Oh. Who and another thing that fascinated me in this in this whole back and forth was the kind of unlikely alliance of people across a huge ideological spectrum. But Jeff Deal, I remember saying that he would actually love to see the games here if it could be done without any taxpayer money being spent. And then, you know, a few breaths later, describing himself as an Olympics opponent. So it was hard to know how to how to what nomenclature to use talking to you guys. Um, Shirley. You obviously took probably more heat than any journalist covering the Olympic bid. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of your critics, thought that you were essentially a surrogate for Boston 2024. I'm wondering how you saw your role as a columnist as this conversation unfolded. Well, I wanted to keep an open mind. And it seemed like in the media, I was one of the few people, at least the columnists, who kept an open mind. So everyone assumed that I was in the tank with Boston 2024. I love it when people say, you're on the payroll, or you want a job from then. I'm thinking, they're not even talking to me, or they're not even cooperating with me, which was really frustrating. Um, uh, and But for me, though, I saw my role as I have access to business leaders, because that's my beat. 
so I should use it. So if I can talk to, if Boston 2024 wasn't talking to me, at least their supporters and donors were talking to me, because this is my people. These are the people I talk to. These are the people who read me. And so um, I wanted to make sure that I was kind of in tune with what they were thinking, kind of what was going on, and and kind of the twist and turns of the the bid as they as they you know kind of you know um, kind of jerked along whatever you want to call it. But, um, <laughs> uh, um, why why wasn't Boston 2024 talking with you? That actually kind of blows me away to hear that. I mean, they were responsive, but they weren't dropping dimes. They were not never suggesting stories to me. I mean, for better or for worse. These ideas that I wrote were my own ideas, by and large. I mean, they weren't. I think I can think of maybe in one or two stories that were fed to me, but everything else was my own curiosity. Lauren, you were nodding as Shirley talked about not being uh, pitched by Boston 2024. You were part of some really tough coverage of the bid at the Dorchester Reporter. Uh, and I think what you guys did early on really effectively was highlight the discrepancy between the pitch Boston 2024 was making uh, to the USOC and the reality on the ground, whether it was telling local business owners that uh, they were going to have to move and claiming they were on board when they hadn't heard about it, uh, or I, I'm actually blanking on. Can you give me no, an example no, of another no, couple? No, I absolutely agree. And I think, you know, similar to Shirley, you know, for me and Bill Forey, I mean, Bill Forey's role in our Olympics coverage cannot be understated. Um, but I think, you know, looking at the Dorchester Reporter's role, you know, we covered this from a local angle. And for us, it was the people who were directly affected most by these plans. And so, you know, basic journalism 101 is to call the affected parties when something is rolled out. And all of a sudden you find out that these people haven't been spoken to. I mean, honestly, it was very easy for us to poke holes in bid 1.0. And at no point were members of the opposition nor supporters calling us to plant stories. And I think that it's important to realize that in that, you know, I've gotten flack for, you know, saying that, you know, I'm supportive of the Olympics or maybe that I'm not. And at the end of the day, neither party was planting stories with the Dorchester Reporter. It was simply what we were pursuing from a local angle. By the way, I just remembered another one of the big stories you guys ran, and that was finding out that the money that allegedly had been allocated for improving Kosciuszko Circle, yeah, that, that, that there were these projects that were supposed to be all set and paid for, and they weren't really all set and paid for. So, right. so you were nodding, uh, I think, at Shirley a couple minutes ago when she was saying that she was never pitched by Boston 2024. Did you get any outreach from uh, John Fish, uh, you know, Richard Davey, uh, Aaron Murphy, uh, Rafi? Any? Rafferty. Yeah. Um, no. Honestly, mm. I mean, I think that was the strangest thing about this story was that you know the bid was um, in trouble. And usually when something's in trouble, the PR machine kicks in, and they're calling you up and telling you what story to write. There was very little of that. And even, um, I'm curious about the social media, um, you know, when social media was pretty rough on the bid, there was no defense. I mean, uh, Mark... Well, there was hackneyed attempts at a defense, but they weren't really convincing. Right, and um, I mean, it was interesting to me, uh, my colleague Mark Barsnow, <laughs> <There we go. laughs> um, at the Globe, in, in one of his, um, you know, the post-mortem analysis, he said what distinguished Boston's bid was not so much the, the criticism. You know, every, every city is highly critical of an Olympic bid. 
What distinguished it was the lack of passion, the lack of support for it. And um, I mean, and, and so I thought that was very interesting, I very wanna, telling. I want to go to Kelly for a second because I know her time is short. How did Boston 2024 and its backers interact with No Boston Olympics? Did they try to woo you guys? Did they uh, offer you jobs? Did they? Uh, I actually have wondered if, if there were job offers. Yeah. I'm going to talk about that. Um, <laughs> I mean, I mean, is that, is that I'm going to talk about that. that. Well, um, well, why not? Because I not? don't want to. Um, like I know, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. I went. No, we were. We had good. Uh, Wait, what are you saying no to? What are you not talking about it? Okay. Um, the uh, we had great conversations with them. They were. They reached out to us. We reached out to them. There Did was. You sit down and oh yeah, many times. We were there. We've gone to 2024 a couple times and talked to them about the bid and talk about our uh, next phase of this. Like, what what do you guys want? Where are you going? They were. They we had a lot of access. And I felt grateful for that. Were they productive conversations? Uh, they were heated. Every conversation in NBO land is uh, over hour. Like we think it's going to be 20 minutes, and it comes much longer and becomes heated. In uh, NBO, no Boston Olympics lands uh, is much very is much longer and much more uh, passionate than you expect. Um, this is a passionate issue. So no, they were we had good conversations, but you never we walk away kind of always like whoa what Without was that discussing the specifics of your job offer can you tell me anything more <laughs> can you tell me anything more can you tell me any no 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 can you tell that was a, a dumb joke i know but can you tell me anything more about the tenor of the conversations with boston 2024 did they get angry at you did were they frustrated no, that you didn't get what made the game so no, exciting were not it was never caustic it was never that heated in terms of personalities and i think we tried to do the same thing it, it's a it's a big issue and it, it's a that but the tenor was very respectful and uh, gracious honestly in time and to some degree i would i was always surprised that we were in the room because it is it's amazing to be honest at times because you know they're, they're big industry titans and where, as Adam Vaccaro says, some um, you know, youngish activists or have no currency to some folks, and then here we are. So it was, uh, it was wild. I'm wondering if the three of you think that the big ideas that were bandied about for Boston in connection with this, for the, the whole area, um, for example, you know, reconnecting Dot Ave to the Emerald Necklace, creating a new neighborhood called Midtown. Uh, do you think, you know, the mayor, the mayor in his Monday presser. I was able to ask him if, he, if, if, in fact, this was the end of the bid, if he would regret it. He essentially said no, because all these key conversations about development in the city were sparked as a result of the bid. I'm wondering if you think that the changes that have been talked about in Boston will happen now that they're not associated with the prestige of a possible, you know, possibly hosting the Olympics. What do you three say? It's a great question, but to be honest, I had never heard of Wadet before this either. So, and I work in public policy. I guess I haven't, not diligently enough. I apologize. Um, but time takes time in the legislature for anything, and this is somewhat an economic development bill. It wasn't as well. It was about the Olympics. Things take a, a long time on purpose, though. So I don't know if we heard about it four months ago, and now it should be done next year. It still should be vetted and discussed. Would not the guys of a temporary stadium? They're going to bulldoze to the ground. 
right after. Um, I think it was a, it's a good idea to have those conversations. And if it's ready to go, let's, yeah, let's develop it, but not what's good for the USOC or the IOC. It's good for Boston. I would have to agree with that. I mean, I think that the Olympics brought a certain awareness and a certain consciousness to issues in the city that, you know, certain groups were aware of, but then suddenly they became these flashpoints, you know, for, I think, for maybe members of the opposition or even supporters. I mean, who was talking about Wide at Circle a year ago? You know, even looking at Kosciuszko Circle, how many of you can barely pronounce it now? You know, it's, still it's, only it's, you. it's still only you. It's okay. I'll accept that. It's fine. But I, but I think you know, the Olympics really did dredge up a lot of the issues in the city that I think a lot of people needed to face. And you know, whether or not it was good that you know the city attempted to grapple with these issues all at once stands to be seen. Arguably, that wasn't good. But you know. It, I think that it is commendable that the city got this far and talked about these things and suddenly, you know, the issues with, you know, connecti you know connecting the emerald necklace. You know, Olmsted's legacy is something that we weren't talking about a year ago and, you know, you, you can't deny that. Um, Shirley, do you think the conversations that we're talking about and the ones that the mayor seems to hope will continue, will in fact continue? I mean, I wish we had another year of conversations. I think then it'll sink in a little bit more. Um, you know, I think that, um, I think it's, um, I think it's much easier, I mean, this is human nature. I think it's much easier to rally around something and destroy it than to build it. And I think that, uh, but at Circle, um, UMass, Columbia Point, it's just gonna take a lot longer. You know, instead of 10 years, it might take 20, it may take 30. I mean, look at the Seaport District. I mean, that took 20, 30 years, perhaps longer to develop. Um, what people don't think about is that in, you know, interest rates will probably go up by the end of the year, or another recession will be upon us. And um, I think in two or three years, people are thinking about, you know, what about the Olympics? What, 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 what would be different now? I want to move on to another big, questions, and I'll throw it all three of you, starting with Kelly, but I want to ask you about what you just said about it being easier to rally around something to do, or to, to get together to destroy something than to make it happen. My hunch is that Kelly and Jonathan Cohen and other people who are opposed to the bid, and I could be wrong here, but that when they hear you say that, that they might bristle because of all the hard work they did to make the bid not happen. So. I'm just saying to build it, You're talking it would, about would take 10 years to build it versus seven months to kill something. But I'm saying the challenge, not I'm saying the challenge now is for those groups who fought, um, and, and everyone else who is part of the Olympic debate is, okay, now that we don't have an Olympic big, how do we take all of that energy and still get it done? And uh, without a deadline, without, uh, you know, how do, we, how do we harness that energy? How do we get those conversations starting without, um, without a deadline? Kelly, do you guys want to go ahead? I, have a, I guess, yes. Um, I didn't, it was in Dukakis who said the other, something about we can burn the barn down easier than you can build it. I, I quibble with that 100%. It's, it's no, I disagree. Um, but I think that what's missing here too is, I think this is also like an elected officials issue too. If they were largely silent on this. There were some, a few, there was folks in the uh, legislature, Moran, Michael Woods, et cetera, introduced a bill. 
Um, you had mentioned Jeff Deal had an Tito, Jackson. Tito Jackson came out. But you, I think the process is that you have, you assume your elected officials are going to have some of this vision for some of these places, and they'll be carrying the water. And this is a, this became a community issue that are now talking about, and how do we harness that? We've never, NBO has never claimed to be elected officials. We have just been against this issue. That actually leads into the big question I'm hoping all, all three of you can weigh in on. What, if anything, does the outcome here tell us about the way that political power works in Boston in 2015? Well, one of the, I would say also this wasn't just about Boston politics, it was also USOC, IOC politics, right? So, exactly. This wasn't necessarily, I mean, Governor Baker had a critical role here, that, although I would love him just walk up the stairs here and we could just like drop right now. So, yeah, I don't but, mean so much within the city proper, but sort of Boston as a, yeah. an imagined community that spans a pretty big chunk of eastern Massachusetts. So, and, and I guess one thing, you talked about the absence of elected officials playing a prominent role. Shirley, I know you have compared Olympic boosters to the vault, the business group that tried to shape policy in, in Kevin White's mayoral administration and noted that while the vault was able to get done what it wanted to get done by and large, these guys weren't. So essentially I'm hoping, I'm hoping that the three of you can get a little sort of uh, uh, theoretical here and maybe talk about what the limitations are of paternalistic top-down policy making or what the potential is of social media driven community organizing or not you know whatever you want. I mean what's clear is that top-down doesn't work and um, and and I think that's a good thing and, um, and, and I didn't really think about this uh, until after the bid was gone um, yes it had political support from from Mayor Walsh and uh, it didn't, you know, Baker didn't take a position on it yet. But uh, looking back, it was the right, wrong time to roll out an Olympic bid. Why do you say that? Because we just went through two cathartic elections. You know, the people elected Mayor Walsh, you know, 18 months ago. Uh, we elected um, Governor Baker, uh, you know, seven, eight months ago, or no, longer than that, last fall. Um, and during those elections, we, the, the electorate talked about what was important to them. Jobs, uh, building schools, um, you know, fighting the opiate crisis. Um, uh, and, um, and then suddenly, you know, and suddenly it's no, the Olympics is on the agenda. I think it would have been better if, they, if, if, if John Fish and Boston 2024 waited until Mayor Walsh had one term under his belt if Governor Baker had one term under his belt, where they have a, a, a little more, they're a little more comfortable in their positions and a little more confident in what they can sell to the public and taxpayers. I mean, I don't think that it was necessary for elected officials to completely weigh in, you know, at first blush. I think that bid 1.0 didn't necessarily have enough information, and I think bid 2.0 again, didn't necessarily have enough information for elected officials to completely wrap their arms around it. I mean, I think Mayor Walsh should be commended for the fact that he did recognize that this is an opportunity for the city and specifically for his district, yeah. you know, his former legislative district in which he recognizes that there are transportation infrastructure improvements that can be made. However, you know, this is something that needed to be fleshed out, I think. And, you know, the bid died, you know, the bid died, you know, full stop. But I think that the process leading up to it was legit, for lack of a better term. 
Kelly, you opened your mouth and looked like you really wanted to say something, and, and that did. What did you really want to say? Yes and no. I think that they, the, the neutral wait and see piece, and I love, I mean, obviously, I'm a lobbyist, I, I, this is what I do, but there's something to the wait and see is kind of like forever, and like, let's see how long the ice is, for, uh, you go you go check and see if it's frozen, you go check, and then someone, once it's done, they'll do a triple axle, and you're like, oh, now I'm on favor for it. There's some degree of, it does take some courage to get out there in front of it, which we didn't see a ton of in this debate. I would, I, I think, many would agree that there it wasn't a lot of elected officials coming out feeling writing op-eds or doing things of that nature which you would like to think there would have been right. and ultimately you could argue that's what killed the bill the USOC cares yeah. about political support and ultimately what you know sent everything into a tailspin starting Friday was when the USOC told Mayor Walsh okay time's up we need you to send a signal that you're going to sign this financial guarantee which you had originally signed a letter saying you would and you know and, and they were also sending signals to Baker are you going to take a position ever on the Olympics because it wasn't clear that after the Brown report came out that he would take a position and so the it elected the position what elected officials thought mattered a lot to the USOC we heard in this whole debate from a lot of white men. I love white men. I am a white man. But, but, this, this is sort of, uh, don't tell your wife. No, 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 I mean, but, but I'm just saying, it's a little, it's a little unusual that right now, and, and Lauren and Kelly, you were talking about this before, I have a kernel of a serious point here. You, you two were talking about this before, and I'd actually love to hear Shirley's thoughts too. We have, we have three women right now discussing this this uh, battle, and it's and two people from Minnesota, but that's not important right now. And it's a battle that that at least the way it was conveyed by the media was really dominated by those white men I love so much. So, what do you make of that? Did that was this in fact a battle fought by my preferred demographic group, or was it? Go ahead. I, well, that's a larger issue, right? I think there's. This is a town that's run by plutocratic white men. Definitely, I feel. I feel that every day. There's frequently. If we were in meetings, I was the only woman. On one meeting, someone thought I was supposed to get the coffee. Like, I mean, it's absolutely. That's Wait, something. Tell me more about what happened. There. No, thank you. I will not. But I. Th this happens in this town a lot, and this is not maybe just even Beacon Hill or Boston. Okay, I'm not asking you who told you that you were supposed to get the coffee, but. What was said and how did you deal with it? I just um, said, no, I'm one of the co-chairs of No Boston Olympics. And how did this unnamed individual react? Oh, oh, oh. And then walked away. And that is that. <laughs> so I mean, th that's not, that happens frequently. And not just because of this particular issue. That happens in boardrooms all over the city. And it's something that one of the other things that we should be focusing on is the pay equity of the Women's Bar Association. A lot of things that also are near and dear to my heart. This is just one um, example of it, I'd say. And I'm thrilled that there's three women on this panel, for sure. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lauren and Shirley, do you guys want to weigh in on the, no, the I, question I mean, of gender and race that. also? I'm sorry? Oh, I just wondering if you, if you want to weigh in on gender and possibly race as well. Uh, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a white woman. But I, but I think that, you know, even just looking at, at the, you know, scrum of reporters, you know, I was basically the only female reporter. I mean, it, you know, I think Shirley can attest to this too, in that, 
you know, in the city, there aren't a lot of female reporters. And I think that, you know, I've been mistaken as a staffer or an intern or something like that. And, you know, it, it makes you work harder. And I think that that, honestly, I think that fed into my drive to own this beat and to work harder and to, you know, prove myself even more. Um, and I, I mean, it's, it's, to a certain extent, I think it's endemic to the industry, but it's, it's hard because Boston is a small town and there are a lot of very, very talented reporters who happen to be white men, but there are also a lot of talented reporters who also happen to be women or people of color or you know, other minorities. And I think it's important to recognize people off of you know, the merits of their work, be, you know, regardless of their... You know, Surely you I know deal in a world that is to a large extent dominated by the same plutocratic white men that Kelly mentioned. Do you think that the outcome of this debate might have been different if it had been more inclusive? No, I, I was going to say you should notch this as a failure, one of the failures of Boston 2024. The bid would have embraced more if they were more inclusive. I mean, they talked about it, but you didn't really see it in their actions and in all the people who were in the leadership roles there. And I agree. so, and if the legacy of the Olympics uh, was supposed to lift all boats, you know, in, it was supposed to bring uh, jobs and um, you know, to and and also to, and, and economic development to neighborhoods that that didn't get it in the in, under Menino. They did not. The Boston 2024 um, did not uh, was not did not get that message right. Even though they, you know, how they kind of talked about they it. They knew they were supposed to, so right. they would talk about right. sprucing up Harambee Park and making right. that the home of the tennis competition. But right, and and I felt that they, they that was an opportunity, a lost opportunity for Boston 2024. They could have got because who is against helping Mattapan? Who is against helping? You know, under, underrepresented communities that that um, have high unemployment. Nobody's against that, but but they didn't they didn't um, rally around that, and they should have. And you heard from people in the minority communities um, who were upset about that. So I guess one of the one of the huge questions. I don't want to get bogged down in it too much, but it's come up again and again tonight. Given that Boston 2024 was run by all these highly capable. Um, high achieving leaders, why did they do such a crappy job, whether it was reaching out to Boston's communities of color or reaching out to a, a columnist who might have been sympathetic to their viewpoint or at least more sympathetic than other people in the media, or you, Lauren, or, well, I guess your outreach is another story, but why... Um, why didn't they, why were they as bad at, what, at making the pitch as they were. How was that even possible? Um, well, I think first and foremost is you need community support first, and that's what it should be. And it was, it felt reverse. It felt like this is idea, this is the vision, this is happening, and it's going to happen. And well, then, yeah, that's the community. they committed to it, and then said, let's have exactly. a discussion. And I think if you had a flip of that, and maybe that's a USOC process, and this is into not 2024 although I could. I feel like this is more, you get your, this is about Boston. Get them on board first and then come in with your multi-billion dollar economic development plan. But it, it felt like a reverse and the people of Boston stood up and said no. Did you I, no, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think that 
you know, when you looked at the initial holes in the bid or even, you know, the subsequent fallout, it was clear that, you know, the initial buy-in was never obtained, be it from communities of color, be it from, you know, really anything, you know, the, the local stakeholders that were directly affected by this, you know, they weren't the ones who were spoken to initially. Yeah, I mean, it was a, I mean, everybody will tell you that the USCC process was fundamentally flawed. Um, you know, they, they wanted the bid to be secret. I mean, I, I called, called over to LA. I said, did the mayor agree to sign a financial guarantee? And the response I got from one of the earlier organizing committees, I can't tell you, the bid is secret. You know, <laughs> so in LA, you know, the, the, it's under wraps still and, until they get, you know, the nod from the USOC to, to be more transparent. So uh, that was a big problem um, for Boston 2024. And what was the rest of your question? I'm sorry, <laughs> too much beer. I know, what was the, uh, I don't I'm, think I'm answering. I'm actually answering. trying to remember. I think I've already forgotten what I asked. Uh, so, okay, well, well, yeah, yeah that's actually, that is, and that was that is Kelly. I swear to God, I was going to do exactly that. I would love to have people who took the time to come here come up and run questions by these three, and I can just hand you the microphone and and let you, you know. Um, and then also there were some questions. I actually think some really good questions people had they submitted on social media, but you're the ones who cared enough to come out. So, would anyone out there like to run a question by any one or more than one of these three? Also, thank you for coming, everyone. Yeah, this is very exciting. This might be a good time to pull one of the notes. Like, perhaps Jonathan Cohn, who... Do you, do you want to come up yeah, here just for a second? So, guys, this is Jonathan Cohn, who many of you may know, who was uh, a huge part of submitting FOIAs and then connecting with traditional media outlets yeah. to, to pass on what he obtained. So let me pass this to you. Yeah, so I, I would actually say that I think they folks, they went somewhat complimentary with standard media reporting because if I would come up with a question after reading an article about something that I didn't think was sufficiently explored, if I had questions about something, then that inspired my request. Like I can note that it was, um, I've had several requests that have actually been inspired by some of your articles, Shirley. Like the, my one on Northwind Strategies was inspired. I think you were- just, just to hop in for a second, my recollection is that Shirley said essentially that Northwind had been inept. Yeah, because I, I, after reading that column, it basically made me think, I wonder what's actually going on behind closed doors in these discussions. So it, that kind of relationship, I, I think, was actually useful in terms of seeing the reporting that was done would prompt, would prompt questions of, well, that, well, that's something interesting. I want to learn more about that. And to get, let's say, the comprehensive picture that you can only get by seeing what actually is going on behind doors requires that kind of expansive request. I want to ask, and Liam Kerr is now keeping Kelly Gossett's seat warm. Liam, thank you for doing that. Just because you want a white man around. That's right. I love, love the white man. Um, I have a question about Mayor Walsh. Um, Mayor Walsh is remarkably popular, maybe not quite as popular as Governor Charlie Baker, but I think that Steve Cazella, tell me if, if I'm right about this, your poll from Mass Inc. and WBUR had him at 73% job approval in July, right? In the city of Boston. In the city of Boston. All right. Um, so this does not seem that this sort of disastrous Olympic uh, pitch does not seem to have hurt his personal political brand, but I'm sure most of you read Yvonne Abraham's piece in The Globe today, which I thought was as good a post-mortem as I personally have read, maybe just because I agree with a lot of what she says but couldn't say it as well. But I want to quote briefly from what Yvonne wrote. She said, even to the end, Walsh still had some of the infuriating, self-defeating arrogance 
of organizers and supporters who, who characterized critics as nimbies and naysayers who simply refused to think big. I'm wondering if you three, Shirley, Lauren, Liam, is this outcome going to hurt the mayor long term or not? Have at it, anyone. I'm reluctant to say that it will hurt him. Um, I think, you know, ultimately, this was an opportunity to bring a lot of money and investment into the city of Boston. Um, that's not to say that there weren't very serious red flags with the USOC and with the IOC process that were glossed over. Um, and I think that, you know, that needs to be acknowledged. However, can't fault a mayor of a major city for not wanting to bring more attention or more recognition to his town. Lauren, let me hop in there city. for a second. I would agree that you can't fault a mayor of a major metropolitan area or major city for wanting to do that. I think what you can fault a mayor for is saying that the opposition was essentially 10 people on Twitter, yeah. as he said, no, I, right? I agree. I agree. And, and, and it's something, you know, as I've, I've sat down and spoken at length with the mayor, I, I enjoy talking with him. I think he has much to recommend him, but he seems to have this obstinacy when it comes to not acknowledging that there were any substantive concerns about the games. That people, you know, the 53% of people in Boston, I hope I'm getting that number right, who didn't want the games here, had real reasons for it, and that that he wasn't necessarily just going to be able to change their minds if he met them face to face or whatever. So, will that attitude hurt him? Do you think, Shirley? Let me get About your take. The yeah, yeah. I actually don't believe that he thought the opposition was just ten people on Twitter. But why I did he say he, it then? Because he did a couple times. Yeah, I don't know why he said it. I mean, because I think that you know he himself, as my reading of it, had a lot of reservations about signing that financial guarantee. You know, and, and I think he had a lot of reservations about the insurance policy. He needed more time to figure out if the policy would protect him. I don't think the Olympics will hurt him. I mean, this is a case where somehow he had his cake and ate it too. I mean, he got to run around and, you know, deal with business leaders and say, you know, I'm going to support this Olympic bid. And, and then, lo and behold, we, we got the U.S. nomination. And, um, and But then he saw how popular the Olympic bid was, and so by standing up, by saying no, and by kind of basically letting the bid go, um, the electorate was behind him on that. Well, let me ask you, if he has his cake and eats it too on this issue, is it because a lot of media outlets cast his press conference as a decisive event when in fact all he was saying was something he had been saying all along, was that he wouldn't put the taxpayers at risk? and. Wait, but the, no, but the, what was different was that he said, "I'm not going to." Well, you were there. I'm not going to put the financial, uh, the the taxpayers at risk, and if it means that the USOC has to move on, you're right. I'm that was okay different. with that. That was the critical phrase. Lauren, you want to have it? And I think also acknowledging the events that led up to that press conference. You know, he was referencing the quote-unquote scuttlebutt of yeah. the weekend, and honestly, the end of the week prior, in which there were well-sourced rumors saying that the USOC was going to pull out of Boston. I think that you know the mayor got out in front of I think what he and a lot of other people saw as an inevitable outcome to ultimately do something that a lot of people will support. And in 2017, when this is two years in our rearview mirror when he's running for re-election, people are going to be supportive of this. All right, I have one closing question. I think that maybe people are ready to mingle 
uh, and some of our panelists I know have to go. But here, here's my, this was a question from, um, I hate to say this, it was someone on Twitter and I went back in my, my mentions and I couldn't find who suggested this question. Uh, if you're here, let me know because it's a brilliant question. From uh, left to right, describe Boston's Olympic bid in one word. <laughs> oh, it was you, Lauren? Yeah. It was your excellent, Lauren. All right, Lauren, do you want to start? Sure. Hubris. But you could think of it. You had time to think about it. I'm sorry. It. I should have been last. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. All right. So Super Oak Browse. We got a we got an over on Periscope. The one word is over. Over. Oh, that's good. Accurate. Deflated. Oh. Hyperbole. Bellatron. That's good. Bellatron. Liam, did you have one? Hyperbole. Drunken optimism. Oh, yes! Yeah. Yeah. No, I was going to say tumultuous. Shirley, last one. I don't have anything good. I mean, uh, I can only think disaster. <laughs> All right. That's Shirley Long, Lauren Zazensky, Liam Kerr, and Kelly Gossett in absentia. Thank you all. Mike Bean, thank you for making this event happen. Thank you for making me be a part of it. Thank you all for coming out. do it for our Boston 2024 postmortem. If you like what you heard them, please subscribe to the Scrum on iTunes. You can leave us a review if you're feeling extra nice or email this episode to your friends, even your mom. My mom loves it. You can find us online at wgbhnews.org slash scrum. We also have links to iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Drop us a line anytime at scrum at wgbh.org. Our producer is Amanda McGowan, and I'm Adam Riley. Thanks for listening. <laughs>